Welcome to the Who's Left podcast, a show about Indiana, politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm broadcasting from Bloomington. I'm recording this episode the day after Thanksgiving. Now, if you're listening to a leftist podcast, you probably already know the feel-good myths were told about the holiday are all lies used to sanctify the genocide white colonial settlers perpetrated on the indigenous peoples of this continent. I am not here to relitigate that history, though I think it is incredibly important we acknowledge it. Frankly, I think the ability to hold two conflicting ideas in our heads at the same time is what separates the left from the all-or-nothing, black-or-white, good-versus-evil thinking of the conservative right. Listen, I love gluttony, football, and family game time as much as the next guy, but that won't prevent me from recognizing the unsavory truth of our nation's original sin. And that brings us to Black Friday, perhaps the most visible celebration of our greatest continuing sin, unfettered capitalism. Today, after having just yesterday professed thanks for all they have, Millions of Americans woke before dawn to trample fellow shoppers on the way to spend money they probably don't have on yet more stuff they probably don't need. More than even the 4th of July, Black Friday is probably the most quintessentially American holiday. Well, even though I didn't do any Black Friday shopping, I did get you a present. The story of a quintessentially American life. My guest today is Allison Dirk. She is the director of the Eugene V. Debs Museum in Terre Haute. Debs was a labor leader, five-time presidential candidate, anti-war activist, and prison abolitionist. The most prominent American socialist of the 20th century, Debs has been cited as an influence by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Ralph Nader, and Bernie Sanders. And... He's my all-time favorite Hoosier. Sorry, old Redbogger. Now, before we get to the interview, I have a quick ask. Do you appreciate whatever this is I do here at Who's Left? Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you use Apple Podcasts or another such platform where you can leave a rating or write a review, please do so. Engagement boosts visibility and really helps us reach like-minded people, and hopefully persuadable others. If you're in a position to financially support the program, the best way to do so is by subscribing at the paid level over at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. While you're there, you can find my essays, campaign finance research, and past episodes of the show. You can also find me on Facebook, X Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon at ScottRodge78. As good as a monetary contribution is a recommendation. Share with friends, family, and strangers alike. Let's build a community committed to pulling Indiana out of its right-wing stupor and maybe have a laugh along the way. Thank you for your support. With that, Here's my interview with Eugene B. Debs Museum Director, Allison Dirk. 
at this time. Please welcome to the Who's Left podcast, Allison Dirk, the director of the Eugene V. Debs Museum in Terre Haute. Allison, welcome. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk. Hi, I really appreciate your time. So, um, Eugene V. Debs has had a bit of a resurgence in the last, I don't know, eight to ten years, maybe. Uh, first with the Bernie Sanders campaign, obviously, in 2016. Uh, Debs is probably the most famous socialist in this country before Sanders, uh, and an inspiration to Sanders. Uh, it got some mention at that time. Uh, and completely at the other end of the spectrum, we are potentially looking at the possibility of uh, former President Trump running next year from prison, uh, which Debs also did. Um, so Debs is a Hoosier. He is from Terre Haute. Uh, give us the give us the brief introduction to uh, our protagonist here. Definitely. And as a quick precursor, I always find it difficult to give a proper elevator pitch for Eugene Debs. It is a few sentences, you know, because Debs lived such a long, very dynamic life, was part of so many causes and movements, and I want to do justice to all of it. And it feels just impossible in a few sentences. But of course, born and raised in Terre Haute, Indiana, this uh, town was his home his entire life. Um, was one of the most important labor organizers and leaders in this country's history. I always waffle a little bit on describing Debs as a labor leader because he didn't want to be referred to in that way. Thought that we should all find a way to be a leader in our workplaces, mm. in our unions, in our industries, and so on. Um, but in any case, Debs co-founded the American Railway Union in 1893, which at its peak was the single biggest union in the country, and then led the Pullman strike of 1894 which did not turn out uh, the way that Debs and the strikers would have hoped, ended up with dozens of them shot and killed by our own army. Pullman workers begged, had to beg for their jobs back. Debs and all the union leadership got jail time. He got six months. And while in jail, really had to rethink some stuff. It wasn't an overnight conversion by any means. It was really a long trajectory. But within a few years of his um, imprisonment, Debs did endorse socialism for the first time. You could say that the Pullman strike was the, one of the final maybe nails in the coffin for Debs in the two-party system because it ultimately convinced him that both Republicans and Democrats are, were in the pockets of the ruling class, capitalists, um, the, the employing class, whatever term you want to use to describe them. But ultimately, that is what led Debs to embrace socialism. He co-founded the Socialist Party of America in Indianapolis, by the way, in 1901, um, he ran for president five times on the socialist or social democratic ticket in 1900, um, but all the way up until 1920, and you'll know by now, of course, as convict number 9653, because Debs was campaigning from a prison cell in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary because he had illegally spoken out against World War I, which you simply could not do. That or criticized the U.S. government under the Wilson administration. Debs did both, got a 10-year sentence for it, got almost a million votes from his prison cell in 1920 as convict number 9653. It was 3.5% of the popular vote. No electors, so I guess you don't have to worry about the spoiler thing. In any case, also spent his last years writing about the prison issue. And um, it's, gosh, again, tough to sum up, Debs, but I try to do it in four big topics or terms 
of labor, socialism, the war and peace question, and the prison question. And those are not perfect categories. They overlap. They're not really delineated. There's a lot of, I think, flow in between. But that last point about prisons, I think, up until maybe in more recent years, has been largely overlooked as far as Dev's life's work and legacy. Dev wrote a whole book called Walls and Bars, published just after his death, which is really a collection of essays and articles about his firsthand experiences behind bars twice in his life, how profoundly that affected his intellectual development, his worldview, um, kind of bookending his radical like public political life too. But Debs also gave a pretty um, prescient political and economic analysis of prisons, as he said, institutions for the poor, a rule to which there are a few exceptions. And then Debs outlined a sophisticated um, abolitionist argument too. Uh, which you'll still hear in the socialist movement or allied movements today. Debs wrote that socialism should abolish the prison by eliminating its cause, as in addressing the social cause of crime before it happens, instead of punishing it individually after the fact, in a way that Debs believed creates a lot more crime in the long run. And I honestly tend to agree with them on most of these points. Um, and that's the same kind of an argument that you will hear from people today like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and what I really try to do with the whole span of Dev's life is less focus on stepping back into his era. There's, you know, ways where that's, I think, useful to do. Um, but less stepping back in time in the house in this museum that's still 2023 or whatever year it happens to be. I want our guests to think about why Debs and his ideas are still meaningful to us today. And we can talk more at length about that as much as you like. But uh, because of just how relevant all four of those topics are today between labor, socialism, peace, and prisons, uh, I can't not draw those connections. So anyway, thank you for the chance to give a brief overview of Jean's life story, and I'm happy to jump off on any of those points as much as you want. Well, sure. So actually, I'm going to ask you to do the thing. You just told me you don't normally do and, and, and step back into his era just briefly and give us a little uh, little overview of his uh, life growing up in Terre Haute and coming of age uh, before he became the man that we know him as. Definitely. So the early years, I think, are super interesting to dig into. So I don't mind, you know, stepping back in time a little bit in that way. Um, and first of all, Gene Debs was born and raised Terre Haute in 1855 is his birth year, was actually born about four blocks west of where his museum is now. Um, it's what's now the campus of Indiana State University, where the birthplace house and the museum stand today. Um, the birthplace home is no longer intact, but there's a small marker across campus showing where that little house once stood. His parents, Daniel and Daisy Debs, were French immigrants from Pombar, Alsace, when Alsace was still France. They came over in the <laughs> late 1840s, and um, they weren't like technically 48ers in a strict political sense, as in like bringing socialist politics with them. Mm. But they mm -hmm, did mm -hmm. raise their children in Terre Haute, kind of a humanistic, free-thinking tradition. Rather than like a weekly church service every Sunday, the Debses had a big family dinner. The boys would go hunting with their father, um, bring home something good for dinner. The girls and mother would prepare uh, something fitting for a big family feast. They would have uh, literature recitations, poetry, music. Uh, that was the kind of family gathering tradition every single Sunday. And that continued well into the children's adulthoods 
And uh, Gene met his sweetheart, Kate. It was probably 1883 or 84. There's kind of a sweet story. Okay, by the way, Gene had four sisters and a little brother. He was the eldest son, but he had two sisters who were older than him. His mother also um, lost four daughters in their infancy. So she lived through 10 pregnancies total, which is like impossible for me to wrap my head around. Um, But the six who make it remain really close knit. Um, And Jane and his younger brother, Theodore, kind of had a pact. I mean, they did have a pact that they would not marry until all of their sisters had been um, either married or engaged because they didn't want any of them to feel pressure to marry for want of a home, meaning that they would be able to take care of their sisters if like, they didn't find a proper match necessarily. And once they were all engaged and married, Jean and Kate were engaged and married in 1885. And they met through one of Jean's sisters. Kate was friends with Jean, um, with one of Jean's sisters. And um, they built their house in Terre Haute five years later in 1890. And by then, Jean was already a relatively public figure within the labor movement and in the local political and civic scene, too. So when Jean, let's back it up a little bit, um, his parents ran a small grocery store out of their home in Terre Haute. And um, they did have a pretty rough go of it in their first few years. I mean, Daniel and Daisy moved around all over the country when they first immigrated. They lived in Brooklyn, Cincinnati, uh, Terre Haute, back to New York and back to Terre Haute. But they fit in with um, the mostly immigrant community in Terre Haute. And around 1850, when they get here, there were about 5,000 German immigrants and a few fellow Alsatians from the same part of France. There was also a free black settlement on the northeast end of town, Lost Creek, one of the earliest, if not the earliest in the state. And uh, uh, we are on we are Miami land, by the way. I think that's worth noting. Um, but Terre Haute became kind of a transportation hub between the National Road, which was the first federally funded highway, kind of bisecting yep. Indiana, connects us actually, um, but went Cumberland, Maryland to, I guess, St. Louis and then much, much further. But um, we're also on the Wabash River. Uh, for a brief period, the Wabash and Erie Canal was also a bit relevant <laughs> by the time it got to Terre Haute and was dug on this way. It was um, not the most commonly used, but the ditch is still here in town. Um, oh. And also the railroads, of course, would put Terre Haute on the map as a transportation yeah. hub. And his father was able to find work when he first got here uh, processing pork. And it was a terrible job. I mean, one of the main industries around is either agriculture or transportation. But the work broke Daniel's health. I mean, the standard 16-hour days, six days a week, which I couldn't sustain. At one point, he was either hurt or sick and couldn't work for a period. Daisy is at home. Two out of four pregnancies have resulted in two lovely daughters. And uh, she's seven months pregnant with what will be Jean Debs. And her breadwinner can't win the bread. So she's kind of backed into a corner in this like town with no family. She was able to put together the last of their savings and bought up enough dry goods from the holding company we can come back to. And she was able to use those dry goods to open her own grocery store out of the home. And by the time Jean was five, they had moved to 11th and Main Street, which was the National Road. It is today uh, Wabash Avenue, which if you go through Terre Haute, you'll probably see Wabash. Um, That family store 
uh, was exactly where Jimmy John's is today at 11th and Main Street or Wabash. And I used to drive delivery for Jimmy John's. So I have a lot to say about workers' rights and food service, but I'll come back to that soon if you want. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for the laugh. And Jim spent his childhood you know, helping his parents in the grocery store, helping take care of his siblings. He was a very good student at school, but he dropped out when he was just 14. And against his parents' wishes, he wanted to start working. Probably didn't need to, like out of economic necessity. The family store uh, was stable and offered a comfortable living for the family. Uh, but Gene still felt an obligation to help support his family as soon as he was able and dropped out 14 years old, got his first job on the railroad as a painter. So specifically, he was painting train cars with lead paint and then scraping the paint off when it filled and flaked away. These were in the shops of the Terre Haute and Indianapolis Railroad. Um, after about a year, moved up age 15 or so to work as a locomotive fireman, one of the worst jobs on trains, if you know your railroad history. Um, not putting out the fires, but keeping the fire going under the boiler. Yeah, that's the, that's the coal shoveling guy, right? Exactly right. If you oh, remember Polarks, what was that part? Oh, I said, oh man, that's, that's yeah, that's a uh, not a pleasant job. No. Yeah, it's rough. I mean, I think I remember a little bit of that in like the movie Polar Express. They did show like the firemen, um, but it wasn't like the most glamorous position at all. Uh, and as the railroads are so rapidly expanding, protected and subsidized by government, there is still no such thing as OSHA for another century. Like most workers don't have a union to bargain for better conditions. There's no functional employer liability. You have to accept the risk of losing a limb or your life for doing your job. And it's after Gene witnessed at least one death of a fellow worker. I mean, he saw somebody crush under the wheels of a vacuum locomotive, is his recollection. You might think he would start organizing, but first he quit. Gene was 19 years old, left that railroad job at his parents' insistence, got a safer job as a billing clerk for the Holman Company. But I argue that his heart stayed with his fellow workers who wouldn't all have mm -hmm. the choice to find a safer position. And he joined his first union shortly thereafter. He was 19, went to his first organizing meeting for the what would become the Vigo County Lodge, or in Vigo County, of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. That's the BLF for the rest of the store, or for the rest of our discussion today. Um, but a union that mainly paid for its members' funerals. That's how bad the conditions were. And again, with no real employer liability, um, no social safety net from government, everybody paid 50 cents a month, about half a day's wages, depending. That was basically your life insurance policy or premium. If you didn't make it home from your job that day, your widow gets a check from the union to pay for your funeral and some lost wages. The check was like usually around $1,500. We're talking 1880s by this point. Um, that's like 30, 35, 40,000 today. It's serious cash. But remember that it's coming from fellow workers struggling just as much, like theoretically. And Jane could see this kind of, you know, narrow focus union do something important, but it's only going to benefit a sliver of workers who already had a level of privilege. This was one of about a dozen craft unions for different railroad workers, uh, the skilled ones, the so-called skilled only. The okay. brakemen will have a union, the switchmen, the firemen, the, the maybe the conductors, the engineers, and so on and so forth. They're all divided out. They're all for the white men only, which we know mm -hmm. are not all railroad workers. And uh, again, only for the so-called skilled workers. And, you know, usually not terribly confrontational with employers, more focused on Offering upstanding members of the workforce, uh, doing kind of community or mutual aid, death benefits, injury benefits too. 
um, all well and good, but I would argue not putting um, a lot of pressure on employers to make major concessions or offer much of a say in like working conditions either. So uh, after growing the BLF, I mean, for close to two decades, because Jean was the local secretary here for the Vigo County Lodge for uh, about five years, by his mid-20s, he was appointed as a national officer of the whole union and under his leadership did help explode its membership, its number of lodges around the country, got out of debt uh, pretty quickly, edited its publication, the Fireman's Magazine, obviously was getting into some labor journalism here too. Uh, but again, can, I mean, here we are at the end of the century, Jane would look at the railroads and see something a lot like what we might see today in Walmart, Amazon, Disney, and Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And these weak, divided unions finding themselves pitted against each other over and over, usually by the employer, but sometimes by themselves, um, not having nearly the leverage or power needed to take on this growing, unprecedented corporate power. So 1893, again, Debs had been building the BLF for like close to two decades, but uh, he resigned. He was ready to try something new with an industrial union, the American Railway Union. So, like, I want to put a pin in that and come back to it whenever you want. But there's another piece here that, like, as Gene was, uh, I guess, becoming this well-respected union leader, uh, he was also making name as a local civic leader, too. He ran a debate club in Terre Haute in the 1870s and 80s called the, uh, regretfully called the Occidental Literary Society. I don't like the name, but it sponsored <laughs> lectures by, yeah, by sometimes like controversial speakers, lecturers who otherwise might not be invited to talk in this town. Some of those will include an agnostic Republican from Illinois named Robert Ingersoll, um, who, like, not a lot of folks I run into know who he was, but Debs was really impressed by his, mm. um, I guess, willingness to be an open agnostic. And he also had like Wendell Phillips speak in Terre Haute, the abolitionist lecture. And then you'll know from central Indiana, James Wilkong Riley, the Hoosier poet, a dear friend of both Gene and Kate Debs, uh, stayed in this house so much that they called the guest room the Riley room, is the story. And he was not so controversial, but a favorite guest of that club. And, um, and then when you go up to the murals in the attic of the house, there's a prominent display of Susan B. Anthony speaking in Terre Haute. And I want to give the story here, um, which a lot of our guests, especially locals, um, do not have any clue that Susan B. Anthony spoke in this town. It was 1879. And like, to be clear, Anthony like was a racist, like had some like today she's seen as pretty milk toast, but. In 1879, she had just been jailed for trying to vote in the previous presidential election. And I like to imagine Jean thinking, if we could invite these men, then why not write to Miss Anthony? And he did. But she was considered so controversial that the debate club refused to sponsor her lecture. So he invited her anyway. Had to rent the hall with his own money, so she traveled place to speak. She's pelted with insults the minute she got off the train a few blocks from the house here. And Debs later reflected on this as one of the first times that he intimately saw that kind of prejudice in his hometown. Never forgot about it. And I like to draw the connection that every time Debs ran for president, a decade later, was running on planks to expand and strengthen our voting rights. So I don't want to jump ahead too far here. I could just give like another, maybe one piece of detail from Gene's earliest years. Um, earlier years. And that was his favorite book. Uh, it was Les Miserables, part of my French today. But Eugene V. Debs, he's named for two French writers, Eugene Sue and Victor Hugo. I've not read Eugene Sue's works. 
um, but I'm working on Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Les Mis was Jean's favorite book. He said that he read it over and over in French as a kid, and I'm still working on the English audiobook as a so-called book. So I don't know how he did it, but <laughs> if anyone is familiar with the story of Jean Valjean or Fontaine or 24601 up to Convict 9653, I think there's so many through lines that we can draw there. Um, not hard to see where James Nitty's sense of social responsibility will come from. What we owe each other in this world. I don't mean social responsibility in like a corporate way, but it's literally like what we owe each other. So I don't know. Hopefully that's a good enough overview. I know that I got a little granular in some of those points, but is there anything else we should expand on there? Do we want to jump ahead? No, that's a great introduction. Uh, thank you. So um, we sort of left off chronologically um, where he was uh, getting involved uh, in more national unions. Um, when when does he get jailed for the first time? Yeah, great question. So it was actually Cook County Jail during the Pullman strike. So. He served his actual six-month sentence after the strike out in McHenry County Jail in Woodstock, Illinois, which, by the way, is where Groundhog Day was filmed, and the jail is still there. But Gene did serve some time in Cook County before he was released on bail um, and described it as, like, the most inhumane, awful place ever, like, rats. But he also saw, like, the prisoners in the jail just, like, sharing everything they had, cutting cigars into, like, halves and thirds to be able to share as much as they could, too. Um, but that was for Gene's role leading the Pullman strike. So if it's all right, I'd like to give some of the background around Pullman and the strike and like how Debs ended up in jail for that too. Um, so it's, it's okay. It's kind of a, there's a lot. Is, could we have like five minutes on that? Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. I, um, okay, I actually grew up in Michigan City, Indiana, where we used to have a Pullman factory. So I am, this is, this is personal. You have the floor. Oh, fantastic. Um, and I'd love to hear about that like personal connection too. So I'm also a northerner, by the way. I'm from northeast Indiana, north of Fort Wayne. Um, but it all ties in. My grandpa was a steel worker, and yeah, this is great. So in any case, let's take it back. Um, I kind of left a pin in the American Railway Union, first of all. And I want to say a little bit about why this new kind of mm, union was mm -hmm. so important. First of all, it was like one of the first attempts to organize an entire industry under one union. Um, we talked about how, for the most part, you'd be organized if you did, if you were lucky enough to have a union, it would be dependent on your specific job or craft or skill, um, dating back to like, or I guess drawing on the tradition of the guilds back in Europe. But the industrial union was a pretty new idea, mm -hmm. again, to organize all workers within one industry. Uh, and that doesn't just need to mean manufacturing or mining or railroads. Like I would encourage our, our listeners to think about what an industrial union could look like in, for example, healthcare education, where like one hospital might have one contract for everybody who works wall to wall or a university could do the same thing instead of having maybe half a dozen or more contracts, even if everybody was unionized, um, how much more leverage or bargaining power you might have as a much larger collective than, you know, divided out based on your specific job or maybe even other arbitrary um, divisions. So that's what Debs um, tried to make happen for the railroad industry. And we don't have an industrial union for the railroad industry today. There's, um, unless you might count like the organizing project that is Railroad Workers United, which draws on 
this yeah. tradition coming out of Debs in the ARU. Um, and I would like be happy to uh, point you to that um, organization too. But that's why the ARU is so groundbreaking. No matter your job, your so-called skill level, um, let's say engine cleaners or maintenance, they're going to have the chance to organize for the first time. Uh, women are also welcome in the AR in the ARU. It was one of the first major unions to do that, but it still failed to abolish the color line. And Deb thought it could and should have. This is 1893 at the ARU's first like big convention. Um, that's also the year of Plessy v. Ferguson, um, separate but equal. And I think the whole country is at, as a, is at a crossroads here. Debs actually mm -hmm. urged the union to vote to welcome black members, which would have been, I mean, historic as an understatement. And yeah. this is, yeah, yeah. And the vote ended up going from the white delegates at this convention went 110 to 112, 110 to 112, not to welcome black workers. It was that close. Wow. Um, there's a lot that I would like dig into with this because Debs actually kind of blamed that loss on like company agitators who he thought were trying to sway the vote. Um, it's hard to say. I don't want to discount like racist attitudes within the American Railway Union either. Um, but Debs did spend the rest of his life insisting that the Pullman strike could have gone differently if the Pullman porters had been welcomed in the ARU. Um, specifically the porters being the black wait staff on the Pullman cars. Mm -hmm. Um, having a key role on the actual cars could have meant the ARU could have shut down the car operations across the country without having to tie up the railroads the way they ended up doing. And like, we'll never get to find out, but I think there's a really clear lesson here about solidarity and what happened in its absence. So I guess within that um, context, the ARU actually did grow to become the biggest in the country, the biggest labor organization at the time. Um, bigger than all the old River Brotherhoods combined. Part of this is because they won a major strike on the Great Northern Railroad to prevent a wage cut. Instead, they got a wage increase. They shut down an entire railroad end to end. And it only worked nice. because the engineers and the engine cleaners were able to strike together in the same union. And they got Jim Hill, the railroad president, to the table, won almost every demand, a sweeping success. The ARU ballooned to 150,000 members in 27 states. And that sets the stage for the Pullman strike. And like, come to the museum, we'll talk about this for a whole half an hour if you want. But we can start with Pullman the guy, um, Pullman the cars, Pullman the town. The cars, of course, luxury train cars that transform rail travel if you can afford to upgrade your ticket. Um, like quintessential example of like gilded age so-called progress or whatever. Um, these luxury train cars with like chandeliers, wait staff, which were black men, which is a status symbol for white travelers after the Civil War. Um, all of these luxury cars are built in Pullman, Illinois, a company town on what's now Chicago's south side. It was um, separate from the city then. It's a neighborhood today uh, where the factory workers build the cars, but they also rent their homes from the company, get their groceries from company-owned stores send their children to the company school. There was even a company church, if you don't believe me, it's still there. It's kind of an old like saying, <laughs> I don't know if it was like workers who said this or people from the outside, but the idea is that you're born into, or yeah, born into a Pullman cradle. You are catechized in the Pullman church, taught in the mm. Pullman school, fed from the Pullman shops. And when you die, oh, you will go to the Pullman hell is the big idea. there. <laughs> so, oh. um, yeah. So, by the way, like, if you ever hear big employers talking about, 
like providing affordable housing just like a little grain of salt because mm. i think like mm-hmm. a lot of these employers are counting on us not doing the reading is the way i think about it but um yeah. anyway another like contradiction here was how george pullman the guy like bragged about being this benevolent employer of black men as the pullman porters which like was considered like a, a prestigious position in, in um, black families like you could travel the country see places you might not otherwise have a chance to see um but the pullman workers the pullman porters were almost entirely paid in tips from the travelers like the majority of their mm. income did not come in wages from the company it came from tips from the travelers which is a bit of your racist origin of the tipping system right there but, but mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. like tipped anybody who like helps you like as long as like the employers are not filling in that gap then like we all have to make sure that we can pay our bills i don't want to encourage people to not tip but um in any case pullman didn't even allow the porters to live in the pullman town in this era it was only for the white european ascended factory workers so just mm-hmm. contradiction on contradiction and then yeah. we get to panic in 93 bottomed out the economy Pullman didn't want to cut shareholder payouts or executive salaries. So instead, he cut pay for the factory workers, about a third across the board, who were already struggling to get by. There's already near universal contempt for the company within the workforce of Pullman. The factory workers are um, fed up. They organized with the ARU to prevent the wage cut and get a rent cut, too. Um, Pullman doesn't budge on those issues, but he did say that there wouldn't be retaliation um, for bringing those issues to the company. And our results determined that was not so true. The next day, showing up for work, three or I don't remember how many actually, but the key ARU organizers of Pullman were fired. There's no work for you here. And that ended up being the very last straw for the Pullman workers. It was May 11, 1894. 2,000 of them laid down their tools, walked out of the shops one department at a time, a wildcat strike not authorized by their union, ARU, which I, I skipped a step here. The Pullman workers did organize with the ARU. Um, mm-hmm. um, so they go on strike. They're not going back till they get a wagering statement and a rent cut. Uh, Pullman doesn't budge. So the factory workers ask their union with Debs now at its head. He's the ARU's president. They ask them to back up their strike with a secondary strike, or you could say boycott against any train moving a Pullman car. And that was a big ask. By the way, that yeah. kind of strike is mostly illegal in this country today, mm-hmm. I would argue, because mm-hmm. they are so effective at disrupting business as usual. Um, uh, I mean, it's hard to deny that, honestly. But um, yeah. Debs, at this point, you know, he's overall kind of careful, even skeptical about strikes, had seen them more often than not, not go the way workers want to see them, because it's not the union that can call in the National Guard when things turn south. It's usually the boss, right? Um, and basically, Debs went to visit, saw the conditions in Pullman, which he deemed unlivable, and called a convention of the ARU in Chicago, and it was not at his direction, but on their own vote. The ARU, I think, unanimously voted to endorse a national boycott of the Pullman Company. And when they enacted it, the summer of 1894 effectively shut down every major line from Detroit to California. They ground this economy to a screeching halt. And all to say that if it can happen in Pullman, it can happen to us too. Uh, Like What shocks me or really gets me about this is how it ended up being a quarter of a million railroad workers who walked off the job for this strike beyond the ranks of the union, the ARU itself. Um, and every single one of them, unless they were literally in Pullman, 
they were not striving for their own immediate gain or pay or conditions. They were striving to demand justice for somebody else. Um, somebody else recently has said, if it can, like, um, be willing to fight for somebody that you don't know. That if it could happen to you, it can happen to me. An injury to one is an injury to all. These quarter of a million proved it, that they paid a price for it. When Grover Cleveland, for whom Debs had campaigned, President Grover Cleveland, Debs had campaigned for as the pro-labor Democrat for president. And Grover Cleveland yep. is the one who gave the green light to send in the army to break the strike. And how do you break a strike? I'll say it over and over. It looks a lot like breaking a protest in 2020. It's shooting into crowds of unarmed demonstrators who, in this case, refuse to clear the tracks and let strike breakers move the trains. This is the end of the ARU, more or less. Not technically, but it's not going to recover um, from this event. Dozens, mm -hmm. about 30, shot and killed by our own army. Dozens more hurt, wow. hundreds arrested, thousands blacklisted. Um, everything at home in, in the media sense is back to business as usual. The workers had to beg for their jobs back. No change in rents or pay. Some of them had to swear to never join a union, which, like, that's illegal now. But, um, and... Um, we got Labor Day. I mean, I it's kind of <laughs> stunning, like the juxtaposition here, but Cleveland signed Labor Day into law during the strike. So it's not even a sorry we're shooting you on the tracks, but have a day off and a picnic, not a strike, a parade, not a protest, and forget about me first. Uh, but now I'm dead in jail. Basically, it's kind of a long running story, but there was an injunction from a federal court written by Reverend Lawyers say that the ARU was interfering with free trade across state lines, so the strike was illegal. Debs didn't call off the strike because, in his eyes, um, if you if the government orders a strike over, you're ruling it in favor of the employer. And Debs thought that the federal government had no right to determine the outcome of this labor dispute. So if he didn't call off the strike, I think if he had, it's hard to say if the ARU would have fallen in line. And... Hmm. Um, it was the next day that Cleveland sent in the army to enforce the injunction, but it was basically contempt of court, which you don't get a jury trial for. That's what Debs more or less gets his six months for. There was also um, a another piece of this that ended up going before the Supreme Court, um, which ended up upholding the use of the injunction to break the strike, which is like historic that's going to set the pattern for um, many strike-breaking events to follow in the coming decades. And now Debs is in jail, which is what you initially asked about. So thank you for letting me take this winding um, trash to that point. He's in Woodstock, McHenry County, um, about 50 miles outside of Chicago, almost to Wisconsin. And a very rural agricultural part of the state still is dairy country. And part of this okay. is that the judge didn't want Debs to be surrounded by urban union supporters in jail. He wanted him to be around antagonistic um, townspeople. And like out in, in um, Woodstock in the area, these are dairy farmers who lost their product when the trains weren't moving. I mean, that's catastrophic. I have dairy farmers in my family, and I yeah. know like, how horrendous that is to lose your product like that. Um, and. James' recollection is that when he gets to Woodstock, he's greeted by a lynch mob at the train station. But the sheriff up there, Mr. Eckert, was a fellow Alsatian. They hit it off. I don't know what it is about the Alsatians. Um, the sheriff said to the townspeople that you all elected me to do a job and our famous prisoner is going to serve his time here. Um, James served his six months in Woodstock, was visited by socialists from around the world. 
One of those will be well, Victor Berger from Milwaukee, not too far away, one of the sewer socialists, so-called because they wanted to use public funds for the sanitation systems. But he was also visited by Keir Hardy, Scottish socialist, who was a co-founder of the UK Labour Party. Um, and Victor Berger specifically, dead said, left him with a copy of Marx's Das Kapital. That, like, we have a copy from Victor Berger here in the house, so I like to think it's that. Um, um, and Deb said that it's that volume that set the wires humming in his system. I have not found many margin notes, so I don't know how closely Deb's actually read Capital, but um, it does. This is really the flashpoint for Deb's. It wasn't an overnight conversion. He actually came out of jail a populist um, campaign for William Jennings Bryan and the People's Party. Um, it's kind of funny. The populist actually wanted to nominate Deb's, but he turned it down. They endorsed William Jennings Bryan, the Democrat um, kind of reform candidate. It's a fusion candidate between the populists and the Democrats. Bryan, the story goes, was outspent 30 to 1 by the Republicans. And his loss appears to be, let's use a cliche, the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and Debs endorsed socialism on New Year's Day after that election. It was um, New Year's Day, 1897, that Debs said for the first time, the issue is socialism versus capitalism, and I am for socialism because I am for humanity. We have been cursed with the reign of gold long enough. Money no longer constitutes a proper basis for civilization. Time has come to regenerate society, and we are on the eve of universal change. So I think we can see, I don't want to oversimplify, but some really um, notable cause and effect here in Jane's life. It wasn't out of nowhere, and it wasn't just an overnight conversion. It was a pretty clear trajectory for Debs, too. Um, yeah, lots to cover, but that is how Debs ended up in jail for the first time. Um, and by the way, I want to mention that Kate actually came up to Woodstock and stayed with the sheriff's family for the last three months of that sentence after the other ARU officers had been released because they only got three months. Um, oh, and Debs was also visited by Nellie Bly, who conducted a very interesting interview um, that you can find on the Marxist online archive, too. Oh, neat. Okay, so um, Debs is introduced to socialism in in jail and sort of comes to accept it slowly. Uh, so once he is fully in a committed socialist, uh, 1897, where does he go from there? Yeah. Oh, it's a long winding road. And I want to add like one clarification point that even before Debs is in jail, like he was well aware of the growing socialist movement. He didn't like the socialists for the first half of his life. He called class struggle an invention of disease knives. Actually, yeah. so a little ableist language, Gene. Um, but I also want to give Kate some credit here too. And I want to also highlight the work of my colleagues with the Debs Foundation, Mickey and John Moran. They draw, I think, a really interesting uh, set of conclusions around Kate's influence on Jean's intellectual development too, um, because her family were German immigrants. She uh, had family down in Louisville where she was raised part of her childhood. And some of her mother's side appeared to be 48ers or at least adjacent who did bring socialist politics with them when they immigrated. And Jean and Kate frequently visited that family after their marriage before Jean fully embraced socialism. So it looks like some of Kate's family could have played a role in that development too. I just want to give some credit where it's due. Um, but anyway, the next few years will be marked by 
various mergers and splits and wings within different socialist kind of quasi-parties and political formations, eventually culminating in the foundation of the Socialist Party of America in Indianapolis in 1901. Um, this will come just after Gene's first presidential campaign in 1900 on the Social Democratic ticket. And then here we go. This is where we can hop on the red special. 1908 is a fun year. Gene's third campaign for the presidency. He wrote post to post in the social presidential special, uh, a trade that was chartered especially for the campaign. Kate wrote on the red special for a period as well. And this is where Gene is literally spreading the gospel of socialism. You can't really talk about socialism in this era without like the Christian socialists. Also worth noting the Jewish socialists mm -hmm. too. Um, but Debs is campaigning on social ownership and control of industry. So, like, I'm kind of bothered today when we talk about socialism as just being, like, tax and spend or whatever. Like, just because the government mm -hmm. does something, I would argue, doesn't make it socialism unless you have, like, social control of that operation, too. So, yeah, um, that, that the basis for Debs' um, platform, um, social ownership of industry or public ownership, but, or I guess if we can do that with public ownership, Debs is also campaigning on making sure the public is actually in charge, which he thought was not even close to the case. He said, we have a democracy in name, but despotism, in fact. So he was running on calling a constitutional convention to address the flaws that he believed were baked into our democracy. Uh, for example, abolishing the Senate because it wasn't elected most of his life. Um, he wanted to abolish the Electoral College he wanted to strengthen and expand our voting rights, women and people of color and law, as well as in fact, he wanted to abolish poll tax or literacy tests to make the thongs of suffrage real. He was also campaigning on like national health insurance, social security, minimum wage, safety protections, um, uh, a whole laundry list that if somebody has won today, whether it was through a contract or a law, like, it wasn't a benevolent gift from an enlightened manager no. or employer, right? It was something that regular people like us had to fight for in some capacity and sometimes even die for, like, the eight-hour day. Um, but Debs will also campaign on the weekend. Gosh, like, there's so much, like, we could dig into with this. But then um, we get, well, 1916, her run for Congress, thought he was done with the whole presidential song and dance and also understood that he was not gonna make it to the white house to him that really wasn't the point he joked that if the socialists ever stood a chance of getting into the oval office they should run a different candidate because he thought he'd make a terrible president the point is laying the groundwork for future electoral success in a system that does not favor um uh, favor us not even the right word that doesn't even empower like little parties like this third parties i guess um laying the groundwork for future electoral success. And ultimately it's about raising class consciousness, making sure that working class people see ourselves as having more in common and different despite all the ways that we've been historically pitted against each other. That when we can unite for our common interests in the system of class domination, when we figure it out, we can't be stopped. Um, and then this will lead us up to, uh, well, US entry into World War I. Uh, we could talk for a, at length about the sedition, espionage laws under the Wilson administration, the draft, how many thousands of people who were rounded up and deported, jailed, some of them lost their citizenship if they were immigrants, newspapers were shut down for publishing anti-war pieces, um, and 
this is not going to deter devs. He went on to give his most famous speech in Canton, Ohio, and is already pretty much revered as an orator, as also where a lot of his income came from was giving lecture tours. But in Canton, Ohio, speaking to the state um, convention of the Socialist Party for Ohio, he said that it's always the ruling class that declares the wars and it's always the working class that fights the battles, pays the prices, freely sheds the blood and furnishes the corpses for wars they never had a say in declaring. And Deb said, if war is ever really right, let it be declared by the people. You who have your lives to lose above all others should decide these momentous issues of war or peace. So democracy, once again, it's all the big idea here. And it's enough to lock Debs up. He was indicted by a federal grand jury in Cleveland, arrested, tried, convicted, and then sentenced to 10 years in prison. He wouldn't live 10 years after that. I can't overstate the meaning of that moment, but you know by now that Debs is not the kind to give up. Spent his time in prison as convict 9653, doing whatever he could to witness the humanity of his fellow prisoners as well. There's some, I think, profound recollections in Walls and Bars, the, the volume I mentioned earlier uh, about those personal connections. But it was released about three years in when Harding uh, granted it, President Harding granted a commutation to time served, not Wilson and not a pardon, do not get it twisted. Um, Gene spent his last years in and around Terre Haute, but never recovered from the toll that prison took on his health and died five years after his release, age 70 um, in 1926 from heart failure. But of course, his legacy lives on in so many capacities. And I know I've taken this a lot further than like, the question actually initially asked. So what else? No, that's great. Well, get into the uh, the, the prison reform and uh, abolition stuff, because, you know, for most people, the dead story sort of ends with the 1920 campaign. Yeah, yeah, this is, I think, so important. Debs wrote in Walls and Bars, like, some basic reforms that could be implemented in, like, the immediate future, like allowing the prisoners to elect their own guards from their own ranks, for example. He thought that prisons should function as democracies. Like, what a concept, right? Like, the absolute opposite of prisons um, then and now. Um, he There's a really great example of him encouraging and helping the prisoners organize for better treatment instead of like individually begging for it. While he was in Atlanta, there was a rule that if you didn't attend the chapel service every Sunday, the guards are going to beat you up the clubs and how very Christian. Deb said that he refused to go to the chapel service in solidarity with the non-Christian prisoners because the guards would be less likely to beat up an old celebrity. That was true. And then he said he helped the prisoners make this demand collectively. And by the time he left, it wasn't a rule anymore. So, you know, one wow. little way, Deb thought that we could improve our conditions even in the worst kind of places. But um, thought that basically prisons, like I said, should be operated as democracies accountable to the public and to the people inside. And that eventually the prison as institutions should be replaced by what he called the asylum, the hospital, and the farm. And like, that doesn't mean like a gulag necessarily. That means like a place where you can do like productive work and feel part of a community yeah. and not just enrich an idle exploiter, as devs might say, um, but actually like work toward a collective effort or goal that you can feel not alienated from, but actually taking part in and benefiting from that labor. Um, and then like, the asylum and the hospital like he's not saying lock people up in like 
rubber rims or something. He's saying like, make sure that we all have at least the basics available for all aspects of our health from every angle um, in order to build a world where prisons can become obsolete. So, I mean, there's one argument about flinging the doors open today. Like we can talk about that if you want, but ultimately Debs is saying, let's build a world that can make prisons irrelevant by again, addressing the social causes before instead of the, having individual punishment after. There's there's so, so much there. I want to mention like we carry walls and bars in the gift shop, but it's also a free PDF online. I'm not a good salesperson. I just want everybody to have access <laughs> to such an important work too. No, very good. So um, we've only got a couple minutes left. And um, where can people find you uh, both online and in person? Yeah, so we're here in Terre Haute at the Deb's house. Right now, we are open five days a week. Our hours might change next year, so like check our website. But it's devsfoundation.org where you can find out about the museum and our programs. You can also support our work, and please, please do. We're working on a million-dollar restoration, and um, we are not going to be able to pull it off on our own. Like This has to be a collective effort, just like Deb's work, too. When I say restoration, I mean for the building. Um, this is the 1890 home of Eugene and Kate Debs, and these houses are not cheap to maintain and keep standing. So please, please support our work. Any amount, big or small, really does go a long way in making sure that we can keep the lights on and keep telling this story. Um, we are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Debs Museum or at Debs Foundation, depending on the site. Uh, our Twitter is probably the fun spot right now. Um, I will not call it X. It'll always be Twitter to me. And I also do Zoom tours for free. So if you can't travel out to Terre Haute, totally understandable. Um, you don't even have to leave your living room if you want. Just hop on your laptop or your phone and we can do a Zoom tour of the entire house. I just use my phone. It's very low tech, but we have a good time with it. It's a great way to see every story, um, every floor of the house, every room. We can tell as many or a few of the stories as you want, but I think there really is something meaningful here in this museum for everyone. And I hope that you'll come and find us. It's um, a real gem, I think an underappreciated part of Indiana and like world history. So especially if you are Hoosier listening, you should come um, visit the house of who I, somebody who I think is one of the most important Hoosiers who ever lived. Absolutely. Um... That is a great way to end things. Uh, I, I could talk to you all night, but I will let you go. Allison Dirk, thank you so much for joining the Who's Left podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's been a real blast. Um, and just like thanks to all your listeners for um, giving us the time to chat about this too. Excellent. Thank you. Once again, that was Allison Dirk, director of the Eugene V. Debs Museum in Terre Haute. I close today with my favorite Debs quote. Years ago, I recognized my kinship with all living beings, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it, and while there is a criminal element, I am of it, and while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. With that... This has been the Who's Left Podcast. I'm Scott Aaron Rogers. Love each other, Indiana.